welcome back to the Justice and Coffee podcast. How are you? Happy New Year. Is it too late to say that? Probably is. It's, uh, it's great to be back. I hope you had a great Christmas. Mine was... Yeah, it was good. It was pleasant. Thank you. It's been a while since we've done one of these, right? But, um, yeah, it's good to be back. I, I got a book over Christmas called Just Mercy by an American lawyer in the, from the Deep South called Brian Stevenson. I don't know if you've heard of this book. They're actually making a film about it, or they've made a film that's coming out shortly, I believe. Just Mercy. It's about his experience of being a lawyer in the Deep South America and the racial inequality that exists in the criminal justice system over there. And uh, yeah, I'm really enjoying it, sort of tearing through it at the moment. But it's just worked out good timing, I think, for, for me, because I had the, the privilege and the opportunity to get on a train a couple of weeks before Christmas, uh, actually just a week, I think, before Christmas, um, to the lovely seaside town of Brighton to meet with two wonderful women. The first was Sarah. Dr. Sarah Senka is a research consultant. She studies the criminal justice system uh, and consults on behalf of different prison trusts or programs or rehabilitation projects, taking interviews and gathering qualitative data to find out what's working, what's not working. She's got a really um, informed and enriched opinion on uh, the criminal justice system in this country. And when Sarah and I were talking about doing this podcast, we thought, wouldn't it be great if we actually spoke to somebody that has experienced it firsthand, uh, not as a, as a visiting uh, professional, analysing it um, sort of academically, but someone that's experienced it by going through the criminal justice system. They've been arrested, they've gone to prison, and they know what it's like to go through that experience. And, and Sarah put me in touch with Bex. So the idea was I was going to take a bit of uh, an interview with Bex and sort of merge it with the podcast with Sarah. But actually, Bex was just so interesting, so incredibly articulate in the way she just honestly shared her life story with me. So I thought this deserves an episode of its own, and I'm sure you will agree when you, when you hear her story. So this is going to be a two-parter. The first part, we're going to hear from Bex and hear her experience of the criminal justice system in the UK. But Sarah was present with me. Um, as I spoke to Bex, and she occasionally chips in to our conversation. So maybe, um, well, let me introduce you to Sarah. What do we know about Sarah? Sarah, can you tell us anything interesting about you? Um, I am Dr. Sarah Senka. Uh, do you insist on everyone calling you doctor? Absolutely. Uh, fair enough, I would. Yeah, electricity companies, any drop-down box, <laughs> I'm ticking doctor. <laughs> I worked hard for that. Yeah, no, that's, that's fascinating. Uh, anything else? So the reason I'm a doctor is because I have a PhD. Yeah, well, I suppose that makes perfect sense. Give me one more thing. One more thing about you, Sarah. I'm obsessed with coffee. What more do you need to know? So that's Sarah, and we're going to hear more from her on the next episode. But for now, let's hear from Bex. Bex, thank you so much for having us. Normally... I would welcome you onto the show, but it would feel wrong doing that since I'm sat in your front room. So really, I appreciate your welcome. 
thank you for the for the cup of tea and Sarah thank you for the mince pie it all feels very festive and cozy in here um Bex I would love for you to share with us a little bit about your story actually and your experience of going through the criminal justice system if you do that for us of course so my story is my story started pretty young so um I became homeless um when I was about 14 and was living in and out of squats and getting myself into stuff that I probably shouldn't have been doing at that age and hanging around with people that were a lot older than me and that were taking serious drugs that a 14-year-old probably wouldn't have got involved with if they weren't in that environment. And um, so, I, so I was squatting for a long time and no one would help me, no one would put me up and I kind of push back against everything in the system. I didn't want to have nothing to do with it. I didn't go to school. I'd been kicked out when, a year before that. Um, my mum and dad had kind of split up and I didn't have any role, any real role models to, to mm. follow. And that kind of carried on till I was about 16 and I started drinking quite heavily and um, was getting arrested all the time for stuff that I'd done when I was drunk. It was never when I was sober, I was, I'd always had a drink and it was normally violence and built up aggression from other stuff and as soon as I had a drink it all came out and it, I had nowhere else to take it kind mm. of apart from with these people that I'd met. Um, so when I was 16 I'd done my first prison sentence, I went to um, a youth court and I didn't believe that I was going to prison, I thought that I was too young, they weren't going to send me to prison. It was, it was a minor assault. It, it was a minor assault in compared to other things that I'd done, and I really believed that I was going to walk, and I didn't. I got an eighteen-month sentence, and wow. I got sent to Bullwood Hall, which is now closed, and it was a um, prison for adult lifers. And there was no, there was no, there was nowhere to send people of my age between sixteen to eighteen. So they made a wing in an adult prison full of lifers for us. Um, I, I can't say I didn't enjoy it because I did. Huh. It gave me structure. Yep. It gave me everything that I'd probably been craving from a young, from a young age, and it, um, it made me feel like I was a part of something, and I'd never felt that before. And I kind of made friends in there that I thought were real friends and real friendships and they weren't based around drugs because there wasn't any mm. and it was based around who I was and I could be who I was and mm. um, I knew from that first sentence that I was going to go back and I knew that um, it wouldn't be long and I while I was in prison one of my friends had written to me and she had moved to Bristol and she was like when you get out come and live in Bristol with me I was like okay so I got out um, and I went to Bristol and I kind of got involved in a different kind of drug scene, but it was still um, quite a dark drug scene. And from there, I came back to Brighton with thinking that I was going to make something for myself with a little, with some drugs in my pocket, that I was going to start selling drugs, make some money and be something. Mm. Um, I kind of came back and it crashed very quickly and um, I got involved with the heroin scene very quickly. Mm. Um, what sort of age were you at this stage? I then? was nearly 17 probably um i was still on license when i came back so i think i was probably uh, 17 i reckon about um and i started selling drugs for other people 
um, getting myself into a lot of trouble, um, robbing drug dealers, get like, getting beaten up, like mm-hmm. not knowing where to turn because I didn't trust anyone. I didn't trust the police. I didn't trust anyone. Um, and I was still committing loads of crime. So it's really difficult to break parts of my story because I don't, my story is that from 17, from 16 really till 23, I was in prison most of the time. Right. I don't think I did longer than a month and a half out in that time. Wow. Um, mainly for shoplifting, a few assaults, but mainly because I was trying to get away from shopkeepers or security guards. Um, and the sentences I got weren't long enough to do anything. So I would get, hmm. um, I'd get probably eight weeks to do four weeks, then get out with a forty-six pound discharge grant, which would go straight away. I'd have no housing. Um, the only time I was ever ha- I was housed once from prison, and I think, I think on my record, I think I've done thirty-seven prison sentences or something like that, and I was housed once, um, and that was before I was eighteen. Um, wow. And that was it. So it was kind of like every time I went to prison, I was let out with nothing, and a forty-six pound discharge grant, and I didn't know where to go, so I went back to what I knew. Yeah. Um, and used drugs again and very quickly was shoplifting and was back in prison. Um, what would you do in those scenarios when you're approaching release in terms of housing? If, if the government weren't providing you anywhere to stay, what would you just go to a friend or a family member? Or? Yeah, so I'd p- probably old, an older man that had their own flat that would let me stay there if I gave him some drugs. Mm. That would probably be my go-to. Mm-hmm. Um, and because I was young and I... I always used to look quite like younger than I was. I would get away with pushing the boundaries, you know, like and stuff like that. Um, and I just—it's mad to think now. Like now, I look back and I think at sixteen, seventeen, eight, I was doing that stuff and putting myself in them situations that were so dangerous. Yeah. Um, and if I saw someone doing that today, I'd be like, "Oh my god, like what are they doing?" And how I thought nothing of it. I thought it was normal. I thought. I actually, I hate to say this and it sounds really cringy, but I thought that I was living the dream. I thought that I was, I'm not that person going to work nine to five. I'm doing what I want to do. Fuck the system. Fuck mm. everyone. Do the, you know, like, and then I don't really know what happened. Like, so my, I've, my, I've kind of always had it. Like I say that I was homeless at 14, but I kind of, my dad's always been really supportive and he just couldn't, no one could control me. No one could, um, stop me from doing what I was going to do. I was always going to be a bit of a car crash and a bit of a bit mad and go and do my own thing. And he was always very, very supportive. And uh, one one time I got out, I went to stay with my nan, actually. And um, she was really worried about me. And I kind of stopped staying there because of that. And because I'd go out and she would be like, are you going to come home? Are you going to be alive? And I would see it. And I didn't like seeing that she was that worried about me. Um, and I went to prison once and I left loads of stuff at hers and she didn't know what I was really up to. She had a guest, but she didn't know. And she went through the bag and there was loads of needles in my bag mm. and um, everyone stopped talking to me. Like, no one wrote to me, no one would answer the phone to me and it kind of shook me up a little bit and um, made me, I don't know, a little bit manipulative, I suppose, that I will go and do something different mm. and they'll come back in my life and they will look after me and send me money when I'm in prison mm. and all that stuff. So... I was in prison and one of the girls on the wing actually said to me, why don't you go to rehab? And I was like, oh, why not? 
Mm. Like, let's give this a go. I don't. Mm. And I kind of didn't want to stop using drugs. I was still enjoying it, I'd say. Um, and I would say that knowing what I know now that I was quite young to go to rehab and quite naive as well. And um, I remember getting picked, my uh, drug worker picked me up from Holloway and I didn't have anything but a bag. I walked in like with just a black bag full of nothing into rehab and um, I didn't stay. I stayed for, I think, a couple of weeks and um, decided that I wanted to go and take drugs again. Yeah. And I left and I relapsed and I overdosed and ended up in hospital. Oh, gosh. Um, and didn't know, I still didn't know how to ask for help. I really wanted to ask for help when I was in hospital. I didn't know how. I still just didn't know how to ask for any help. Um, the only thing I knew how to do was get arrested. <laughs> so I purposely went out and got arrested and got sent to prison. And um, I went to Bronzefield and I was quite known in there because obviously I've done a lot of sentences. And I knew to go in there and I knew when I was in there that I could ask for help. Mm. So I was doing, I think I only got a short sentence again. I think I got six, um, six weeks to do three. Um, when I was in there, I asked to go back into rehab. The rehab said no, they didn't think I was ready. Um, but the um, the carrot worker in the prison had known me along. He'd seen me grow up basically, mm. and he says something's different about you this time. I, I know it is. I can see it's different. Um, and he pulled a few strings and he really helped me. And he um, got me into a, the dry house. So he let me. They let me skip the rehab bit and go straight into the dry house from prison. And he kind of set that up and really, yeah, really supported me to do that. Um, and again, I didn't stay. I didn't stay clean, but I stayed around for about two and a half years. Um, kind of started volunteering and really. Well, you stay that. You stay that in jail for two and a half. Yeah, years. I stayed out of prison for two and a half years. So, I haven't. So that's my last prison sentence. That was. Oh wow. So that. So the. How, what, how old were you then? I was. T- so six years ago, just over six and a half years ago. So I'm thirty-two. So about twenty-five-ish. Yeah. Um, you said uh, there was a term you referenced to the the person that helped arrange that. What was the? So sort? he was a carrot worker. What's that mean there? So carrot stands for something. Right, I haven't got a clue it's now. It's an acronym for yeah. something. Yeah. It's not called. They're not called that anymore. But it's just a drug worker in the prison. Right, right. And I think where I was really lucky was that I had him. He'd known me since I was seventeen, mm. and he'd stayed in that role. Mm. And he knew me, he knew how to work with me, he knew how to talk to me. Um, and he knew that I didn't ask for help, I'd done everything my own way. Yeah. I was always in trouble in prison. And this time I wasn't, and I was asking for help. Yeah. Um, and I think it kind of says something that I couldn't find it out here, but I knew that I could find it in there. And I knew mm. that if I wanted to change that the help was there. Um, it was just about wanting to, mm. and about reaching the place where I could go okay I'm wrong which I think is quite difficult to say you know I really believe that I wasn't mm. and I really believe what I was doing was okay and mm. you know saying no but I was wrong like I, I need your help I yeah. need you to help me and guide me and yeah. support me to do this um, how much of it do you think it's your responsibility to say I need help and how much of it is actually could we like, could the government could the prison system do more to actually extend that offer? Could they support you more? I mean, you referenced getting 
shipped out as a teenage girl with 46 quid and no housing arranged mm-hmm. that doesn't sound like that's the best scenario no. to prevent someone no. reoffending or reusing. No, definitely not. And I think, I think people give up on you. And I think people are only human. But if you're in a job role like that, you have to keep reminding yourself. You know that you can't give up. You have to keep trying with people, and something will click eventually. Whether mm. it clicks at the start or it, or it's six years later or it's six months later, like to have that consistency of someone trying and someone believing in you, I think is really important. And I think that's where people, what people don't do. And I see it now where I work, like people get disillusioned with people. They believe they're never going to change. And I know that's not true. I know that for myself, like it's not true. Mm. And if maybe if someone was there sooner Mm. and had been like that and given me the support every time I went in Mm. and said, okay, what can we do for you this time? Do you want to try this? Because no one... I didn't even the, I didn't even know there was rehabs in Brighton. I'd lived here all my life. I'd used drugs here all my life, and I didn't even know that these rehabs existed mm. until someone in prison told me. I didn't know. No one had told me. Huh. Um, I'd had drug workers, and I know I was really difficult in, to engage with. And I know what well, I'm friends with my drug worker now. That was my drug worker for all them years, and he was like, "You were so difficult. No one could pin you down. You'd never gone a methadone script, and you would just be here, there, and everywhere." But I don't think I don't even remember anyone even trying. Yeah. So it's like them saying you were really difficult, but I don't remember you even them even coming and trying to find me or you know, even looking for me or even coming when I was in the police station or in prison and coming to visit and saying, you know, we're here, we can do this, this is what we offer. Like I don't remember any of that happening. Yeah. Um and I still believe that to be true today. Yeah. To some to some effect, yeah. We sit here now in in your flat you've got a you've got a job you turned up in a car yeah life's quite different from from what it sounds like it was yeah in that chapter of your life like could you figure out would you be able to pinpoint exactly what it was that that started that change so i think it hmm, i think it was realizing that life is okay without taking drugs and that i'm okay as a person and that it's not that scary and so I don't something it's really it's really difficult to explain like something just clicked and went you know what this is all right give it a go like you're doing well you're mm. it's all right mm. like get a hobby get something you enjoy doing like I'd never enjoyed doing anything mm. um and I started going to football and now it's a massive part of my life like I've Follow Brighton. Oh, I go come on! Up and down the country, like I come on the seagulls. Yeah, I go to every game. I hardly miss them, um, and it kind of. I just remember saying, clicking in rehab and going, you know what? It's okay. Like it's okay. You don't need to use heroin. It's fine. Like life's okay. It's quite good actually. Yeah. Um, it can be difficult, um, and it can be heartbreaking. And my life has been anything but easy. My recovery has been anything but easy. My partner died of a heroin overdose. Um, like I broke my leg this year like it's been a really difficult thing but I love my life mm. and I don't want to take drugs anymore mm. um, yeah that's amazing that's so <laughs> encouraging to hear a story like <coughs> yourself and I just hope that other people will be able to to hear this message yeah. actually you know that there is hope mm. it's you're not locked in a system where you're going to be ever repeating that for, yeah. for forever and no it's great to see where you're at at the moment. Tell me a little bit about what you do at the moment. Uh, so I'm currently um, a complex needs worker and I work 
for a homeless charity and I work in a set, separate team to um, everyone else in the charity and we kind of work in a really different way and we work in a way that we I stay with the clients I have. So I have 10 clients, which is quite a lot, mm. um, but we do like intensive work with them. Um, I've been doing my role for um, about a year and a half and I've had the same clients for that whole time. So whether they go to prison, they get sectioned, they they go to another district, I follow them no matter where they are. So at the moment I've got clients all over the South and I will go and I will work with them and I will work with them in a way that they want to be worked with. So I've newly designed a, a, a piece of work that I use and it's a sheet of paper and it's asking them what they want and where do they want to go. Huh. And instead of me going to them, well, this is the system, this is what you've got to do, it's not that. It's like, what do you want from me? Yes. Like, what can I do for you? Yes. Um, can we have make a relationship? And it, it verges on being a friend to someone without... Yeah. It's kind of like I'm their friend, um, but they're not my friend. And the boundary's there, but it's, it's, it's a little bit blurry. But they trust me and I trust them. And mm. we build up that... You know, like... And it has such great results. Yes. Like, it has really, really great results. Obviously, some people it, it doesn't work for yet, but I will continue to work with them. And when it does, it will work. But with a lot of them, I've come in and I have to say, none of my clients are rough sleeping now. And when Amazing. I first started, I think about 80% of them were. Wow. Um, yeah, so it worked. That, that continuity, that, you know, that they, no one's ever had anyone believe in them, a lot of these people. They've been through the care system, they've been through the prison system, they've been through the mental health system, and no one's stayed, no one's cared enough. And it's kind of like, I've become that person that does. Yeah. Um, and I love my job. I do love my job. Yeah. yeah. You're that role model that you described <laughs> yeah. earlier on as, that was missing in your life. Yeah. How amazing. Yeah. Do you think that there is a link from your experience <coughs> between homelessness and ex-offenders coming out of jail with nowhere to go? Is that a typical? Is that a typical thing that you come out? I, I'm not sure where to go and end up on the street. Is there a relationship like that? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So I, a lot of people I work with are, if it wasn't for my role, probably they would. A lot of them would get out rough and would be rough sleeping still. Yeah. Um, a lot of the people, it's it's really difficult. The system's really broken, and it's there and it functions, but it doesn't work for the client group that I work for, and it doesn't work for a lot of people that are. A lot of the clients are complex, yeah. and a lot of the clients have different different issues. And there is housing, but they don't meet the threshold to be put into emergency accommodation, or they have a background where they've been drug dealing, so they won't even be looked at because of that. And yeah. Mm. Um, Speak loud. <laughs> yeah. So when you came out of prison or you came out of rehab, I'm wondering like how hard you found it to maybe get a job because what I'm thinking is your lived experience helps you do your job right but I'm imagining that there was lots of barriers people assume that you can't get a job because you've got convictions and you mentioned you've done 36 37 prison sentences so some people would think well I can never be in a role like you are yeah. and yet your experience is the whole well, not the whole reason, but a major reason why you're so excellent at your job. Mm -hmm. But did you find that there were some doors shut in your face because of that? Uh, so 
I think I've been really quite lucky. So I volunteer. So for the rehab I went through, they you have to volunteer. At the end of your stay, they make you go and volunteer, and you can volunteer for them. Hmm. So I started volunteering for them, and they had a um, a service set up that was an internship service, and the rehab I went through. I don't know if I'm allowed to. I'm allowed to mention like names or you mention whatever you want. Um, so I went through somewhere called Brighton Housing Trust, and in Brighton they probably have the biggest service, like a lot, like 15, 20 hostels in and around Sussex. And they did internship programs, and I was lucky enough to get on one of them and do an internship in a young person's hostel in Eastbourne. Um, and I learned some valuable things, and I was treated like a member of staff. I was given keys, I was given responsibility, I was given clients, and it really built my confidence up, and it really um, gave me the skills that I needed because I didn't have them. I didn't. I just because I've got a lived experience doesn't mean I've got skills in how to work and how to deal with things. It really. They taught me how to do that stuff and how to engage with people and how to talk to people and, you know, um, and I wasn't really thinking about going to work and then I was randomly on holiday. I was in Gambia. Um, nice. <laughs> I do love my holidays. I do like going <laughs> away. Um, I was in Gambia and one of my friends messaged me saying there's a job at User Voice. You'd be perfect. Go for it. You've got to go for it. And I was like, he was like, the closing date's really soon. So I was like, okay. So I went for it and... Um, and I got the job and I didn't believe for one minute that I was going to get it. I remember like I'm not the smart, most smartly dressed like I'm sitting here in a hoodie and you know and I went to this interview in a hoodie being myself thinking this is never going to happen like everyone else was in suits and I was just there like um, yeah and I kind of got this job and I kind of gave me an identity as well to work. It kind of gave me that stuff that I said that I got from prison and I'd got from being in prison, I'd got that like sense of feeling belonging to something. Working kind of gave me that as well. Mm. Um, and I kind of felt belonged to something and I could fight for something that I believed in. And Well, you weren't like Bex the criminal or Bex, you know, with an addiction or, you know, then you've been stripped of those identities and you're like, well, now what, what am I contributing or who am I? Mm. So work yeah as you say gives you a purpose and um, something to get up for Mm -hmm. and so often we think of work in a negative way we might moan about it but actually there's so many positives Mm -hmm. and so many people in prison will be thinking like that's what they're aspiring to like normality actually becomes appealing yeah yeah and it's really like because I said at the beginning didn't I like I never wanted to be that person that gets up and does a nine-to-five I hated it I hated the idea of it I hated the system I've always been like that I don't some kind of anarchy in me about it and to now enjoy it I kind of I thrive on it as well I kind of thrive on the um the what's the word the um routine the stru- yeah the routine the structure like it kind of is inbuilt into I love it and I like getting up and I like going to work I have obviously hard days where um I see the system failing people and it becomes really difficult and I have a moral dilemma and you know I know what sometimes I feel like I know what needs to be done and if I can see what needs to be changed but the people that can make the changes can't it's like how like how is something still running so badly yes um when I can see how easy it is to fix it yes um it's it's yeah and it yeah it's shocking sometimes to see that it sometimes it is an easy fix and it might require a little bit of money or a little bit of time to be put into it but we'd get 
greater results yeah. if we did. What do you, any examples of that you think? So I think that um, having a continuous one worker that works with you wherever you are really really works and yeah. having that relationship. I also think that n- knowing that people care and that you're not a lost cause or just because you don't want to. And some people will never want to um, conform to society's norms. And I don't all the time. Um, I do really random things like book holidays and just go on my own. You know, I have to do that. And some people will never want to be part of the system that does certain things certain ways. And that's okay. And to tell people that's fine. That you don't have to be something you're not. You know, like I'm not pressurising anyone into doing that. And I think that's really important for someone to hear as well, that you haven't got to go to work nine to five to be okay and to be happy. You know, Um, there are a lot of ways to achieve happiness and to achieve a life that is worth living. Yeah. We've just had a general election literally last week before we recorded this. And I was sort of reading through some of the material beforehand, trying to decide, you know, where to place my vote, which is difficult decision at this uh, particular time in history in in the UK but one of the things I stumbled across and I can't remember which party to be honest with you but it was the issue of short sentences the sort of sentences you described like these three six weeks let's scrap them I think the party was so let's start looking at this and would that be something you would advocate it's a really difficult one I think because on one hand I think prison has saved my life Mm. um because I think if I didn't go to prison, I probably would have died. Um, and I see it with the people I work with now. I see prison as a positive intervention. A lot of people look at it as a negative intervention. Whereas I always see it as a positive intervention for my clients. Uh, I just don't like the fact that they're sentenced to four weeks. Mm-hmm. Because what can I do in four weeks? What mm. can anyone do in four weeks mm. to support someone to change their life dramatically? Mm. Um, yeah, no, no one can do anything. So I think prison sentences need to change Mm. and they need to be either longer, if anything, so it gives you time to work with someone. And I think scrapping scrapping short sentences completely is a very difficult thing to do. Because like I said, people are rough sleeping. It's winter. They need a break. They need food. They need to go somewhere. And if that's the only place they can go to get that and to get somewhere safe to be is... It's a really, it's a, I think it's a really difficult topic yeah. and a really um, difficult... It's a complex one, isn't it? And yeah. I really hope that your opinion... There's it, it, a, a place that I'm sure a lot of the work Sarah does is, is actually taking you know, a first-hand experience like yourself and trying to employ that into this conversation because it's so valuable. Yeah. And let's hope it doesn't get missed. You mentioned Gambia. And when we first came here, you were talking about the fact, I mean, you've still got a bit of a tan. You've just got back from <laughs> Vietnam. So you love going on holiday. Tell me about what you were doing in Vietnam. So I, so I broke my leg, as I said earlier this year, and I was kind of sat on my sofa at home, like thinking like I need to do something. Like I'm, I hate being stuck. Yeah. And I, think, I thought, I'm stuck. I need to do something really random and I need to book a holiday and I need to just go. Um, and I thought, I'm, I love Southeast Asia. I've been before, and I, but I've been with friends. And I thought, do you know what? I'm just going to book it and I will worry about where I'm going, who, what's going to happen when I get there. So I kind of booked this holiday to Vietnam on my own, to go on my own. Um, 
and I, I still seek like no matter, I'm not using drugs and I'm not committing crime and I'm not doing all that stuff but I still seek that adventure and that kind of stuff I still have to have it as part mm. of my life and I kind of went to Vietnam I didn't know anything about it I've spoken to a couple of people that have been uh, I had three nights accommodation booked and nothing else and wow. uh, I literally took a little rucksack on my back and was like I'm just going to go and I'm going to see what happens and I got there and I kind of had a little bit of a reflective time I was like a few things have happened over the last few years um, and it was really nice to be on my own to be able to do that and I just decided to go to the beach for a little bit decided to fly up north and go to Hanoi and go and see the Halong Bay which is really beautiful and then because I was on my own I could make the decision of where I wanted to go next and I flew back to the beach and I kind of had four days in like a bungalow on the beach that was cost next to nothing with a beautiful family and was on my own quite a lot of the time and it was lovely Amazing. and I could never be on my own I was always I had to have someone to reassure me that everything was going to be alright and you're going to be fine and or someone that was would use with me and make everything that I was doing okay and just to be on my own and just to reflect on what I have done in the last few years like everything hasn't been perfect and I've made mistakes but I have a life that I'm really happy with I have fought hard to get it and mm. I um, would say fight most most months you know with different things like everyone does um mm. and i'm really lucky i think because i have a really close selection of friends we don't see each other all the time anymore because we all work um but i know that if i called any of them that they would drop anything and they would come and support me and i think that's invaluable mm. um and i never had that i didn't have anyone i don't have any so i don't have anyone that i used with i don't talk to, i don't have any friends from that time um all because i think because i was young Everyone that I used with was maybe a little bit older than me, not much, um, and they're all still using. So I kind of came into recovery with no one. I came in on my own um, and made these really great support networks. Um, yeah, I think I'm really, I'm really, really lucky to the friends I've got. What are your, Pace, what are your hopes and aspirations going forward? Um, so... Apart from Brighton, winning the <laughs> yeah, Premier League. Yeah. yeah, you can wish, can't That's you? That's just a dream. <laughs> um, <coughs> so, my hopes are that I can um, support other people to realise that life's okay with out using, no matter what you've been through, you can work through it um, and come out the other side. And that I think it's really important that. I don't think people know that, that how much damage they're doing to themselves by taking drugs and by going through the criminal justice system and how much trauma um, they're putting themselves through by continuously do it, going through the same cycle. And I really hope that I can change some people's lives mm. and that I can support people to change. And I think at the same time, I'm still growing as a person as mm. I am. I am, to some people, a, a baby in recovery and I've been around... Um, five years but mm. I'm still quite young into it and I plan this year to take I want to take six months out and I want to go travelling on my own and I want to um, look at myself a little bit more and about what I do want to do and what I do want to achieve and how I can help people that are stuck in the system 
and how I can get people's voices heard and the system to change and it work for them. Like, I really want to do some stuff like that again. Incredible. Mm. Sarah, is there anything you wanted to ask? Anything? Well, I was just ref- I was just actually thinking when you were talking about um, your trip to Vietnam, the word that really like just sprung in my mind was freedom. That that whole trip just sounded like the beauty of it was the total autonomy and freedom that you had, and how when you were describing when you were younger, like at 14, 15, 16, you had a lot of freedom to all intents and purposes because you were running around doing whatever you wanted. But I was just reflecting on how stark the contrast is that you, you have this new sense of freedom, but it's like you va- like it's, it's valued and appreciated in such a new way. And, mm-hmm. and how a lot of that is because you can sit with yourself. Yeah. And I just, Definitely. yeah, it's not really a question. It's just a reflection mm-hmm. on how beautiful that is that you've, you've come full circle and yeah the, the freedom that you had which was kind of um you know characterized by a lot of mayhem mm-hmm. now the freedom that you had in vietnam just sounded so peaceful mm-hmm. it's funny isn't it because we love i am guilty for it i think we all are we love a happy ending mm-hmm. right we love to tie a bow on everything and say ah happy ever after mm-hmm. walk off into the sunset <laughs> but often it, that's probably not realistic actually the struggle's real and it's every day Mm -hmm. and life is tough but you are an intelligent and remarkably articulate person and I couldn't have wanted for a better individual to sit here on this podcast and explain you know what it was like you're you're going through your experience you've summed it up so brilliantly um so thank you thank you thank you so much So that was us a week before Christmas in Brighton. Sarah and I then jumped in a cab and headed to a conference room in the Jury's Inn Hotel on Brighton Seafront to record our follow-up conversation, which you can hear in a couple of weeks' time. I took away a number of things from that chat with Bex. Firstly, what an outstanding example she represents of the possibility of change and a reminder not to write anybody off. I found it so encouraging to hear how her journey has moved away from a life of drug use, crime and ever-repeating prison sentences to going on holiday, following the mighty Brighton Hove Albion up and down the country and helping others through her day job as a social worker. Wasn't that inspiring? I thought her perspective was also incredibly fair and balanced and that she showed great self-knowledge, often taking responsibility for her circumstances rather than throwing the blame at other people or the authorities, even when I gave her an opportunity to. But there are definitely some areas that need some attention, don't you think? The fact that Bex was let out of prison as a teenager, 36 out of 37 times, with nothing other than £46 and no housing arranged. What on earth were we expecting to happen to her? It's also not the first time I've heard people describe the desire to go into prison to get help. Another reflection on a system in desperate need of repair, where people are looking to commit crime in order to receive support. Then we know something isn't working. There was also some really helpful suggestions from Bex about how things could be improved by pointing out the importance of having a consistent caseworker, someone that knew her and believed in her and could intervene to help her case, and also the availability of support services that are out there. How can we make people more aware of their existence? 
But let's pause on that for now and see what we can learn from our next episode with Dr. Sarah Senka. So let me close out by thanking Sarah for arranging that talk with Bex. Thank you to Bex for your incredible honesty and vulnerability and hospitality. Thank you for having us in your flat. And to Megan and Abba, who both gave to our podcast Kickstarter. These conversations could not have taken place without your generosity, so thank you. This show was produced by Blue Bear Coffee Company. We are a social enterprise raising money for organisations fighting human trafficking and caring for survivors. You can find out more about us at www.bluebearcoffee.com. We're also on all of the usual social media channels. Check us out on Instagram and Facebook at Blue Bear Coffee Co. And on Twitter at Blue Bear Coffee One. Give us a message. I'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode and the subject of our prisons here in the UK. Or perhaps if you're not from the UK, tell me about the issues your country faces with its criminal justice system. Who knows? Perhaps we'll make a podcast on it. Thanks again for listening and please do continue to share us with your friends. Until next time, peace.